Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. the good pleasure uh, to have the opportunity to talk to James Boyce in person, unlike many of the podcasts that I record. This is a chance to actually be literally face-to-face with the author. James, how are you doing? I'm very well. It's fantastic to meet you and to be here in a sunny, beautiful New York City. Yeah, talking about your such a timely book. We've talked previously about your research, but you have this more recent book uh, that is as of the moment as you can get. Why don't you just talk about... Uh... I have the good pleasure uh, to have the opportunity to talk to James Boyce in person, unlike many of the podcasts that I record. This is a chance to actually be literally face-to-face with the author. James, how are you doing? I'm very well. It's fantastic to meet you and to be here in a sunny, beautiful New York City. Yeah, talking about your such a timely book. We've talked previously about your research, but you have this more recent book uh, that is as of the moment as you can get. Why don't you just talk about uh, your ambition in writing the book and, and sort of what you uh, were setting out to do. And also, you know, sort of tell us the title as well. Okay, so uh, my second book is called Hillary Rising. It reaches a new political biography of Hillary Rodden Clinton. Uh, when I was researching my first book, uh, Clinton's Ground Strategy, which we talked about a year or so ago, I had the good f- uh, fortune to meet up with uh, a number of people who'd worked for uh, then Governor Clinton and uh, encouraged me effectively to to write my next book on Hillary. And at that point, uh, she hadn't announced for the presidency. It was assumed that she would. So it was an idea that was percolating a couple of years ago. And then uh, my publisher, Biteback, said that they really wanted a book in the market about Hillary Clinton for ostensibly a British audience, if I'm honest, but also one that would have overseas reach. And a book that didn't just talk about the 2016 election, but uh, really painted a bigger picture. So what I wanted to do, you know, I looked around at the market because there's no point just writing another book on Hillary Clinton. Um, She's obviously put two uh, batches of memoirs out. There are a number of books that look at what I would say is sections of her life and her career. And I looked around and I realised that there wasn't... um, a really good book that covered Hillary's entire life and career, and yet also tried to put her life and career into context of the American experience. Um, 
so that's what I tried to do. Uh, so I've gone back to her birth uh, and brought it forward, as you imagine, and talked about where she was at various stages of her career, where the US was at those stages of her career. And so try to put her life and politics and career, uh, both as wife of Bill Clinton and importantly as a, you know, an, an emerging figure in her own right, within the context of the late 20th and early 21st century American experience. Yeah, so, so the, the, the book is broken up in, in this way. Mm-hmm. And, and we know some things about these different parts uh, of her life, some that she has told the world mm-hmm. and others that the world has told about her. But, but maybe there's something from that early period that you studied um, that we don't know about or that you think is, is significant in a way that hasn't been paid attention to. Is there something outside of the, the common biography that we're often told that you think helps make meaning of, of Hillary Clinton as a political figure and as somebody who's in the midst of running for the presidency? I think the thing that... Um I found most interesting and which I think is of great importance is I think that Hillary's um, entire political career has been characterized by her political opponents far more successfully than she's ever been able to convey her own sense of mission and political center. And I think there's a problematic reason for that. And that is that at, at heart, she is far more... Uh, quote-unquote conservative and cautious and uh, less progressive than many people within the Democratic Party would like uh, and that many members of the Republican Party would like to admit to. Um, If you go back to her birth uh, in the late 40s, you know, she's born to a very stable, sort of relatively middle-class background with a Republican father who was a small businessman, you know, and and that, by the way, is something that she's referred to, it must be said, on this campaign far more than she ever did eight years ago, ostensibly, I think, to make that juxtaposition between what a a small, uh, moderate Republican businessman in the 40s and 50s was like compared to, of course, Donald Trump. Um, But that sense of being born into that time and place in Truman stroke Eisenhower's America, to a relatively very thrifty uh, Republican father who would not allow the heating to be on, for example, at night time in Chicago winters. Listeners to this will understand what that means, possibly more than a European audience would, um, which I try and explain to. Um, Her parents had all lived through the Great Depression and had suffered as a result. Uh, Her mother, Dorothy, had put her own ambitions on hold and held them over for her daughter, uh, Hillary. There's a lovely story, for example, apparently when... Ronald Reagan appointed Sandra Day O'Connor to be the first woman on the Supreme Court, uh, that apparently Dorothy uh, Rodham, Hillary's mother, was quite disappointed because she'd hoped that perhaps her daughter might aspire to that position. Uh, It now looks as though she's going to go one better, it must be pointed out. Um, So this idea that Hillary Rodham, as she was born, um, comes into the world and starts her development as a Republican, you know, when she goes to Wellesley, uh, she's carrying, you know, conservative literature with her. She's in the re- Young Republicans, effectively, at college. In the summer of 68, you know, a, a tumultuous summer, if ever there was one in this country, 
She attends both the Republican National Convention and the Democratic National Convention. Uh, she interns with Melvin Laird months before he becomes Nixon's defense secretary. You know, this is, this is a really interesting position for a, uh, a woman in her late teens, about to enter her 20s, who will then go on to become such an apparent firebrand of the American left, if you believe her critics, which I argue she never is. She's a very moderate figure, a temperate figure, um, and someone who is very, very happy at virtually the dead centre of American politics. And what we've seen in this election cycle, obviously, is Bernie Sanders come along and remind Democrats arguably what an old Democrat used to be like uh, before the new Democrat project that Hillary and her husband helped usher in successfully, it must be said, in the 92 election. And whatever happens, and I'm convinced that Hillary's going to win as a matter of interest, but whether she serves one or two terms, um, I'm also convinced that she represents the end of a political cycle rather than the beginning of one, um, which is something, if you want to talk about, obviously we can develop. Yeah, I wanted to talk also about sort of the next period of her life, that is sort of her period of life in Arkansas, uh, which you write about in the book, and uh, a period where um, her sort of career changes in some ways, and she's uh, engaged in uh, professional activities, but, but that are not sort of the, the ones that we have heard of later. What if you talk about that, that period, of, and are there any of those things that she was doing that you think are significant in understanding the, the array of, of policy views she has today, um, something that sticks out from her time, let's say, in, in uh, Arkansas? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating stage in her life, and it's also one which I think, um, you know, there was a lot of people who say, why study history? History is dead. Well, I disagree, obviously, as a political historian, but... I also think that history is interesting for the way in which it is constantly being retold. And the Clintons retell their own history. Um, and a classic example of that relates to Hillary Clinton and why she goes back to Arkansas. Because, of course, uh, she, met, she met Bill when they were both at Yale Law School and both had brilliant futures ahead of them. And it's important to remember, um, you know, we look through the life. We look at the life of Hillary Clinton, and all too often it's told through the prism of her husband. And this book is, is, does very goes to great lengths to not to do that. You know, this is not Hillary Clinton, wife of Bill. It's Hillary Clinton, individual in her own right. And a lot of people ask, well, why on earth would this brilliant, driven woman who had public light on her when she was still at university, um, featured in Life magazine long before she met Bill Clinton, why would she go back to Arkansas when she could have gone to New York, Washington and had a career on her own? And the way that's often portrayed is, well, you know, she followed her heart because he wanted to be governor of, uh, of Arkansas. It's important to remember that when she goes back to Arkansas in 74, Bill isn't running for governor. He's running for Congress. And the expectation is in the fall of 74, when Nixon is still hanging on, that Bill Clinton might be able to unseat an incumbent Republican. Um, and for all of the um, issues of honesty and claims of being crooked Hillary, which we've heard so much about, it is arguably her integrity and honesty that perhaps hinders her husband. Because when she comes down to Arkansas, she makes it very, very clear to those people around Bill Clinton that she will not allow ballot boxes to be stuffed in her husband's name. 
um, which, let's be frank, is something which was rife in the American South for many, many years. I mean, you know, when Lyndon Johnson enters politics, they facetiously called him Landslide Lyndon because he was so renowned for being engaging in underhand uh, tricks. Uh, Hillary Clinton is remarkably honest and just, you know, it's almost politically naivety, quite frankly, on her account. No, we can't do this. No, we can't do this. Um, before she moved down to Arkansas, she'd been working on the impeachment campaign for Richard Nixon, which, again, some people don't know about. So we had this remarkable image of Hillary Clinton sitting in the dark listening to Richard Nixon's tapes, trying to have as broad a definition of impeachment as possible so that she can basically help remove Nixon from office. When, of course, a generation later, she is bunkered down with her husband trying to reduce the, the scope of impeachment to save uh, to save her husband from removal from office. So there is a, there's a remarkable journey that goes on there. Um, I honestly believe that when she moves to Arkansas to help her then boyfriend's campaign for president, sorry, for, for, for office, that she believes with every... Um, every reason that should be right, that she could be back in Washington within months as the girlfriend stroke fiance stroke future wife of governor of uh, Congressman Bill Clinton from from Arkansas. Then, of course, Nixon resigns. Jerry Ford becomes president. And, you know, for a, a brief moment, uh, all is forgiven. Um, and America's long night, national nightmare is over. Um, and that really uh, helps, I think, put the nail in Bill Clinton's uh, political aspirations that year. And at that point, there's nowhere for him to go. You know, he can't run for the Senate. There's not an opening. So he has to basically click his heels. He becomes attorney general in Arkansas for a while. And then what, four years later, on, I guess, in 78, he becomes uh, governor uh, for a rather inauspicious two two-year period after which he's kicked into touch. And it's at that point that Hillary really comes into her own. And um, it's easy to see how if Bill Clinton had, had married anybody else, he could have just at that point become just another charming, roguish, southern, good old boy governor that the world had never heard of. But Hillary sort of steps in and says, listen, you know, I think she realises that everything that she has worked so hard to achieve is now in potential ruins. And she has to become the spine in Bill Clinton's uh, career and said, right, come on, we're going to, you know, pick yourself up, stop feeling sorry for yourself, dust yourself off, learn from your mistakes. Let's get, you know, Dick Morris in. Um, let's go out and, you know, ask for forgiveness, not for the last time in a political career, and return to office successfully, which, of course, he does. Um, and from that point onwards, from the, what's that, 82... Uh, campaign onwards, you know, they arguably never look back. Um, and then it's um, uh, onward and upward to the White House. You've written previously uh, about foreign policy, particularly the, the Clinton-era foreign policies and the people that advised them and the way in which they developed a Clinton doctrine, if there was anyone. I wonder if you could connect that to Hillary Clinton's time as Secretary of State. How much of, of that Bill Clinton foreign policy does she adopt, and how much of her time at this, uh, as as Secretary of State is truly a different approach to foreign policy? It's a, it's only one of the jobs, but 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 how similar is is her philosophy in that specific policy area to what we saw in the 1990s? I think that I'd like to approach that with thinking about two individuals, and those individuals are Joe Nye and Madeleine Albright. So. Joe Nye, obviously, in the in the in the 90s, you know, comes up with the idea of uh, soft power. And the Clintons, I often think, are the political embodiment and um, uh, flame keepers, if you will, of, of Joe Nye's philosophy. So Cl Bill Clinton 
um, brings Joe Nye on board into his administration, um, very much takes the, the soft power approach to American foreign policy to heart. And if you look at the things that Nye advocates through those ideas, you know, we see them embodied very much within Bill Clinton's foreign policy, I think. It's not, you know, hard power is very much out of, uh, out of vogue, effectively. It will obviously come back in after 9-11. But certainly for those eight years of Bill Clinton's time in office, I think Nye's philosophical approach, the, the soft power approach, is very much in the vanguard. And it's an area that Bill Clinton in particular feels happy with. When Hillary becomes sextant, of course, um, in her confirmation hearings and throughout her four years, she's an advocate of Joe Nye's latest concept, which is not soft power anymore, but smart power. And so I think you can see how in the 90s, she and more particularly her husband advocate Joe Nye's philosophical approach from the 90s of soft power. And then moving forward into her time as Secretary of State, this idea of smart power, um, which I think fits very nicely with Hillary's idea of blending soft and hard power. Hillary Clinton is someone who is far more um, at ease, I think, with the utilisation of American uh, military firepower. And that comes from her relationship with the second person I mentioned, which is Madeleine Albright. You know, people often ask me who I think would be an obvious parallel and someone who we could look to for an example about Hillary, how Hillary Clinton might act as president on the world stage. And I always say Madeleine Albright is as good a role model and, as anybody to look at. And the reason I say that is because of the, the relationship between the two women. Um, in Bill Clinton's first term, Madeleine Albright had served as UN ambassador and was often seen as being patronised by many of Bill Clinton's closest advisers. It's also true, I think, to say that she was the one, uh, to use an expression that she was renowned for using, she was the one with the cojones in the room. You know, uh, Bill Clinton's team of relatively little grey men, if I, if I can be so bold, uh, were not particularly forthright, not particularly uh, muscular, um, or at ease with the utilisation of American firepower overseas. Uh, Madeleine Albright had no such compunction and, of course, famously asked uh, Colin Powell when he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs, you know, what's the point of having this fantastic military you always banging on about if we're not going to use it? Um, Powell's, you know, ensuing aneurysm notwithstanding, um, you know, that put her at odds with a lot of the people around her. Um, she forms a, an interesting working relationship with Hillary Clinton as First Lady. Hillary Clinton is instrumental in ensuring that Madeleine Albright becomes America's first female Secretary of State in Bill Clinton's second term, at a point arguably when there were better qualified candidates. You know, frankly, after negotiating Dayton, you've got to think, you know, poor old Richard Holbrook deserved his, his shot at the title, frankly. Um, there's obviously reasons that Holbrook didn't get chosen, but the fact that Hillary Clinton made it very, very clear that Madeleine Albright was the person to go to. Bill Clinton owed his political survival to American women. It ticked a lot of boxes and didn't do any harm politically and historically to say, right, I'm naming America's first woman Secretary of State. And in that second term, uh, Hillary Clinton and Madeleine Albright, I think, developed what they both admitted was a very, very interesting and unique relationship in which Madeleine Albright sort of schooled Hillary Clinton with regard to foreign policy, which, of course, came in very, very handy when Hillary moves to the Senate. Uh, she becomes the first 
member of the United States Senate from New York to serve on the uh, the Armed Services Committee. Um, when she realizes after 9-11 that her initial hope within the Senate to focus upon those issues she was more familiar with, i.e. healthcare issues, children's issues and women's issues, are going to have to take a back seat because of the change dynamic because of what happened in this city some 15 years ago now. And so, you know, the two people I think are most important to Hillary Clinton's uh, philosophical and political career to date are Joe Nye and uh, Madeleine Albright. Yeah, the book, uh, Hillary Rising, The Politics, Persona, and Policies of a New American Dynasty, is uh, published by uh, Biteback Publishing this year, available widely. Uh, James, it was so nice to have you here and talk about the book. Thank you very much. Good to see you.